Okay, if you have your Bibles, let's go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is where we'll be as you turn there. Uh, one announcement I did forget to make is that uh, next Sunday, for those of you who are helping out at Shepherd's Conference, next Sunday, if you're helping out, mandatory meeting, we need to talk with you in between services next Sunday. So just right after first hour, depending on whenever first hour gets done next Sunday, uh, you can just meet us in the student ministry offices right next door. If you're one of those who are helping out, just come see me, and uh, we'll meet in between before second hour starts. Romans 8 is where we are. Uh, This is a familiar passage as we've spent the last four Sundays looking at Romans chapter 8, what so many people see as the best, greatest, their favorite chapter in the Bible. I actually asked, and I'm not going to have anyone raise their hand, but I said, if you memorize it, let me know. So if you're one of those people uh, who's memorized Romans chapter 8, and and your reward will be bountiful, uh, come let me know. Um, And if it's only one, then I guess it's 10 grand just for him then. I'm just kidding. Um, But Romans chapter 8 is where we've been, and this text we're going to look at this morning, today, is for so many of you one of your favorite passages, or has one of your favorite passages in the Bible. There's so many of these verses that we're familiar with, and maybe you don't realize that they're all together, but here they are, these nine verses, and we're going to look at them this morning as we finish up Romans chapter 8. The question I want you to consider as we read through it is, what does this tell me about my relationship with God. So as you look at these nine verses, just ask yourself, what does this tell me about my relationship with God? Romans chapter 8, we'll look at verses 31 to 39. Let's read it together. Romans 8, starting in verse 31. Paul writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son... But gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. This is God's very word. An important passage, a passage that we need to pray about before we think about it. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we know your word says that eternal life is knowing you and knowing your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would help us to know your love for us this morning. I pray for students here who know you, that they would know the love of God in Christ Jesus, and that by knowing your love, they might worship you and mature in you and desire to tell others about you. 
Lord, I pray for those who are doubting this morning. They have a hard time singing about shaking their guilty fears because of their sin. Lord, I pray that you would comfort them this morning as we think about the cross and Christ and your love for sinners. Lord, I pray for those here who do not know you, whether they are indifferent or whether they know their loss and aren't sure what to do. Lord, I pray that you would draw them to yourself through this portrait we see of your great love for us. Thank you that you're a God who loves sinners. We pray that you would bless this time for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Can a child mature without being loved? Can a child mature without being loved? Said a different way, if all they had was food, water, shelter, would that be all that they need for development? It's a question that psychologists have asked and studied over the years. And they've come to the conclusion that though a child would physically continue to grow, as all children do, they would not develop fully as a person, emotionally, in responsibility, socially would not mature. When I was in college, um, I was studying to be a math teacher, ministry of death, now a ministry of life. And I had to learn all sorts of theories, and one of those was Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It was a psychological theory that they teach at those who are studying pedagogy uh, about what is it that children really need to develop. And it's sort of this pyramid that gets made. At the base, what they need is food, water, warmth, clothing, blankets, etc. That's what the very base is. They can't survive without those things. But without, without more than those things, they really can't develop into a person who knows how to interact socially, to carry responsibility, to be able to care for others. So first level is sort of those basic needs. The second level is called security. A child needs security. They need to know things are going to be safe. Things are going to be consistent. They are not fearing for their life all the time. But the third level is a level of loving or belonging is what it's titled. It's the need for relationships. The need to be loved and have confidence that they know they're loved. In order to be mature, in order to mature, they need to be loved. Now, before you run off and say that Petrus just talked about psychology all day today, I'll done with that. I think we talk in a very similar way. Right? Think about the way that Christians talk about adoption and foster care. What do we say? We say, man, this child needs somebody to care for them, someone to provide for their basic needs. And then beyond that, we think, man, this child needs uh, shelter. They need security. They need a home to be in. And how often do we use this phrase? This child would help them is if they were in a loving home. You've heard that expression before, right? They were in a loving home. Why? Because that loving home is what allows them to mature. I mean, think about how different your life would be if nobody loved you. How different would your life be if you thought there's nobody that cares for my needs? No one who's looking out for my interest. Uh, You might imagine that and think, look, my parents aren't the best parents. Maybe they're not perfect parents. But how blessed are you that they've looked out for your needs and have sacrificially cared for you? That's what makes isolation so difficult for people. Why? It's because people need to be loved in order to mature. 
The same is true for the Christian faith. That if you're going to mature and grow as a Christian, you need to be convinced that you are loved. You need to understand the love that has been shown to you. And you need to understand the love that has been shown to you in Christ. Do you this morning, if you are a believer, do you believe that you're loved? Do you believe that the holy God who has spoken this entire universe into existence, the God who sustains the universe, the God who has once flooded this world and allowed it to flourish again, that that God loves you? Do you believe that? That's the question we come to as we look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is addressed to Christians. It's for Christians, and it's to help them understand the hope, the confidence they have in God. Christians who are sometimes tempted to wonder, what really is God's attitude towards me? Does God actually love me? Does he actually like me? Or does he just sort of tolerate me? We've been talking uh, that, that life for a Christian is difficult, and uh, you are tempted to doubt because of a few different things, three S's, I'll, I'll call it. Tempted to doubt because of sorrows, slanders, and sin. Sorrows because life in this world is hard. Uh, death happens, trials happen, illnesses happen, financial difficulty happens, and as trials in life get hard, we are tempted to ask, does God really love me and care for me the way he says he does? Uh, slanders, that is, uh, those who oppose us. Right? It's not easy to be a Christian. I think I said this a few weeks ago. Some of you know that line that says, if I cross this line into faithfulness, it'll, it'll get me flack from my, uh, my unbelieving friends. It'll get me flack from some of my pseudo-believing friends. And so it's hard to think, well, is God really loving us if following him costs us so much? And of course, finally, what we've brought up is sin. Sin, our own flesh rebels against God, and so we're tempted to think, God can't love me. Right? The people that love me most are the ones that know the true me the least. Okay, But God can't possibly love me because he's seen all my flaws. In the light of this, we're tempted to ask, is there any hope that I'm accepted by God? Does God really love me? Now what I want you to see this morning is that God is so kind. Because what God wants us to do in this world, these, these words are in your Bibles in front of you because he wants them there. He wants you to know if you're a Christian, that you really are loved, that you can have assurance, that you can have the hope of eternity, that you can have confidence that the God who knows you will fulfill the promises he's made to you. God wants us in Romans chapter 8, we've been saying that if there was a key word for Romans 8, it would be assurance or confidence. Or maybe a key word for Romans 5, 6, 7, 8, these four chapters would be hope. Certainty that I will make it to heaven. And that's what this whole chapter has been about. So just let's just, as we're wrapping up Romans 8 today, let's consider again the highlights. I'm just going to read these verses. Look at verse 1. We're not going to read them all. Verse 1. Think about what's true for you if you're a Christian. This is what's true for you. This is what God has wanted you to know so far through the first 30 verses of this chapter. Verse 1, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You won't be condemned from sin, you are freed from sin. Verse 11, 
If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, whichever Christian it does, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Take a look at verse 15. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. We just sing about that. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit comes and gives you confidence that God is your Father. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witnesses, bears witness that with our spirit that we are children of God. Verse 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Verse 18 says that there are, that the sufferings of today, therefore, are, do not compare with the glory to be revealed. Look at verse 23. It says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Verse 26, what else is true for the believer? Likewise, the Spirit helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Finally, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might present in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. No condemnation. The Spirit has given you life. The Spirit tells you that you are a son of God, as much of a son as the son who you will inherit the universe with. The Spirit groans in you, thank you longing for the glorification that comes. In the meantime, the sufferings that you face do not compare with the heaven that is awaiting for you. That is everything that's promised in a, in a very small form in verses 1 to 30. If you're a Christian, that's what God wants you to know. Not just what he wants you to hope for. He wants you to know that you have. Those are yours. And so as we come to verses 31 to 38, as we finish this chapter, these verses function as a sort of, so what? What's the response? What are the conclusions then that we should draw? Look at verse 31, very beginning of it. What then shall we say to these things? What do we say? How do we respond? If, if, those, if verses 1 through 30 are true, not just an option, but these are true, what should be our response? And what I want you to think about this morning is what this passage helps us to do which this passage helps us to confidently identify what our relationship with God is like. What is your relationship with God like? How do you feel about your relationship with God this morning? What is true about God's feelings for you? Christians, if you've trusted in Jesus, as you deal with, again, sin and sorrow and slander, this passage helps you understand what God is like towards you, what your relationship is like with Him. And you're going to see it's good. It's encouraging. It's amazing. If, if, I mean, I was even talking with Austin this morning, Austin Duncan. He just said, 
Romans 8, greatest chapter in the Bible. Is this, are these the greatest verses in the Bible? And, you know, all, all verses are equal, but some are more equal than others. And so 31 to 39 is so good. If you're not encouraged this morning, it's because you're just not paying attention or you're not aware of how sinful we are and how much we don't deserve this. If you're here listening this morning and you're not a Christian, you're listening to this, what I don't want you to think is this is some sort of uh, exclusive bragging. Uh, this is not some sort of like, listen to these Christians talk about all the good things they have. I, I do hope that uh, if it does seem like I'm bragging, I'm bragging in a way that would make you envious and want in on this. Because what I want you to think about this morning is this passage, if you're not a Christian, is an invitation. This is how loved you could be by God today. This could be what your relationship with God is like today. If you do not know Christ, this is the offer God is giving you this morning. And so listen closely and intently. What is the believer's relationship with God like? Here's what we're going to look at this morning. I want you to see three no's, that is negatives, not yeses, but no's. Three no's that help you know what your relationship with God is like. There you go. Three no's so you can know what your relationship with God is like. And my hope, my prayer, is that as we see the love of God, and as you know the love God has for you, that it would mature you. Because God's love matures his children. Let's look at three no's promised in this passage. Number one is no opposition. No opposition. Verse 31 What then shall we say to these things? Paul then begins. Okay, what's our response? How are we going to think about verses 1 through 30? And he begins by saying, If God is for us, who can be against us? Now sometimes good Bible reading has to do with stewing. Just sitting on things. If if your mom... uh, cooks lunch for you, sometimes she's heated up the crock pot before you've left in the morning. And all those flavors have just sort of marinated together while you've been at church all day. So you come home and there's not been active cooking going on. It's just kind of been lightly boiling and all those flavors are there when you get home. Let's stew on this passage. If you're a believer, if God is for you, Who can be against you? If God is for you, who can be against you? What an amazing truth. And in there, there's an assumption that Paul has really unpacked. He doesn't defend it. He just assumes it's true. He assumes you know it's true. It's this. Verses 1 through 30 teach us, God is for us. He just assumes that from those passages that we know for sure, if 1 through 30 is true, then God is for us. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that God is for us? It's an interesting question. I don't think we need to exegete it and get into the Greek or anything like that. But if he is for us, and he's not against us, that's an opposition here. For the Christian, that means that God is on your side. Okay, he's for you. He's bent towards you. Though he is exalted and controls everything and everything screams to his glory how great he is, relationally he is allied with you. That is, he's not opposed to us. He hasn't set himself against us. He's working 
with us. In fact, he's working all things for us. Ben mentioned that last week in verse 28, that God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. For God to be for you means, well, there's nothing in this world that is working against you. You have a God, even when seasons are tough, even when tears are many, you have a God who works all things for your best at all times. If you're a believer, there's nothing you're missing out on. He hasn't set himself against you in any way. Now, isn't that good news for Christians? That God is for us. Isn't that good news in the midst of a world that is opposed to real believers? And by the way, I say real believers. The world is not opposed to pseudo-believers. They will let you be comfortably, culturally Christian over in the corner as long as you don't try to be a real follower. Uh, one of the things I'm good at is telling you what books my kids and I are reading through. And so right now we are reading through a book. I have a picture of it. It's going to be grainy. Uh, it's called Little Pilgrim's Big Journey. If you've ever read, read Pilgrim's Progress, have any, has any of you ever read Pilgrim's Progress? Handful of you, okay, it's an allegory about a man named Christian who's leaving the city of destruction. He's on his way to the celestial city. It's, a, it's an allegory of the Christian life. And re, we read this one because it's a lot of big words in the real one. And so for the kiddos and I, we, we read through this one. Um, you can take the picture off now. That's a little, I endorse it for you. So, um, and what's interesting is it's this allegory about following Christ and staying on the path, following the commands of the king all the way uh, to glory. And there's a lot of different things that get Christian off track. The allurement of sin, um, doubt. But over and over again in the book, one of the things that keeps coming up that we as a family keep talking about is pressure from other people not to follow Christ. That the uh, ridicule and embarrassment from, from uh, being a real Christian uh, becomes a real temptation, a real deterrent, to following Jesus. The temptation for the Christian will always be, it's going to cost me to follow the king. It's going to cost me my reputation. It's going to cost me popularity. It might cost me friendships. Student, isn't it encouraging in this passage to persevere? Because if God is for you, who can be against you? If God is for you, What does it matter if other people mock or ridicule or no longer invite you, no longer talk to you? God is for you. He's going to exist with you forever. What an encouragement to know that he is for us. Now, before we continue, I understand that some of you in this room will not follow Jesus truly. I, I mean, you'll acknowledge him and you'll you know, post a verse on the, the socials every once in a while, uh, but you really won't give all of, you are to, of who you are to Christ because, well, it would cost you. It would cost you friendships at work. It would cost you friendships at school. For some of you, I know it would cost you the very friendships you have in this room. Certain people you're sitting with right now would not associate with you if you actually gave everything you have to Christ. Can I just ask you this question? Let's take this verse and flip it the other way. If God is against you, what does it matter who's for you? Like, like if, if God is opposed to you, then do all of the smiles 
and likes and acts of approval that you get, do they matter at all? Like, like will, will God listen to the mob of those who, uh, who say, nah, they're great, they just didn't need to be a real religious person. Student, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. There is one person in the universe who gave you life. There is one person who sustained you. There's one person who's going to bring you to stand before him one day. And his opinion is the only one who matters. If God is against you, what does it matter who's for you? You know, Mark chapter 8, actually throughout the Gospels, Jesus says famously, whoever is ashamed of me before men, I will be ashamed of him. So do not be deceived. God is very much opposed to you if you've decided to be opposed to him. He's not going to listen to the straw poll of your closest friends who are already biased. Now for the Christian, though, God is for you. At all times, God is for you. God has never set himself against you. I want you to think about that in light of suffering. Right? Sometimes when there's a tragedy, there's someone close to us that dies, or we miss out on a blessing, uh, uh, it, it feels like something's not going our way. Sometimes what we do is we think, ah, you know what, because of that uh, sin in my life, God took this away from me. God got me. Right? He's, he's always kind of looking to get us, and he got us. Is that true for the Christian? Now look, Hebrews 12 talks about discipline. God, like any good parent, disciplines his children for their good, for their holiness. But it's never vindictive. So listen, next time you're going through a trial, God is totally sovereign in that trial. He's allowed it to happen. But he's not, he's not opposed to you. He's not setting you straight, getting you back for some other sin that you did. Why? Because for the believer, he is always for us. How do we know? Let's ask that question. How do we know? How can we be sure that that's the case? Right? Some of you are saying, okay, how do I know God is always for me? Some of you have trust issues. You've been burned in the past. How can I know for sure that I could trust myself to this God? You ready? The answer is verse 32. How do we know God is for us? Verse 32, where Paul writes, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. God did not spare his son. Paul says, you want proof that God is for you? Let's not look at answered prayers. Let's not look at favorite worship songs at the right time. Let's go right to Calvary. Let's go right to the cross so you can know for sure that God is for you. What do you see at the cross? You see a God who did not spare his own son. He delivered him up. He sent Jesus to die in the place for sinners. Think about that. Think about the love that exists between a father and a son. I'm reminded in Genesis 22, it's the story of Abraham being asked to sacrifice Isaac. And it's a story that, uh, you know, sometimes in children's ministry, you just color and they're like, yeah, there's the ram. And, you know, that happens. But, but think about the weight of this passage. The, the passage has the drama. Genesis 22 says, He said, God to Abraham, Take your son, your only son, 
Isaac, whom you love. And any father's loved son feels the weight of that. And you go and offer him up. You know the story. God provides the sacrifice. But here, what do you have in the passage? Romans 8.32. He did not spare his own son. There is a love that's existed from before the foundation of the world, the love between the father and the son. John 17, Jesus prays, give me the glory that, we had, that I had before the foundation of the world. That before in eternity past, the father and the son and the spirit were in perfect love and communion with one another. And here, God offers his own son. His son, who he says, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. My servant, according to Isaiah, in whom my soul delights. God loved the Son. And yet he offered him up for sinners. For those who hated him. For those who were his, as we read in Romans 5 earlier, his enemies. So that he might save us. So he might forgive us. This is what God has done for you, Christian. And what's our response to that? What what is our response to that back in Romans chapter 8 now? He says, if God has given him up for us all, all of us sinners, then how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God has taken care of that, can we be confident That he will do what's best for you? That he will be for you in every lesser problem? Which is every other problem? Because every other problem you have is far lesser than your problem of sin? Friends, this is the grace of God. This is the confidence that we can have that God is, in fact, for us. This is how we can know when life is brutal. God has not abandoned us. We know because he's taking care of our biggest problem, which costs him a lot more than what it would take to take care of your problems. This is the love you can know, by the way, in Christ. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is what God offers in the place of your sin. You're not getting a better offer. If you're saying no to this, you're saying yes to taking care of your sin on your own. You'll say, I'll bear it if I don't say yes to this. But Christ came to die for sinners, to be offered up in your place so that your sin might be paid for and you can have a God that is for you. What good news this is. God is for us. And just by one last application before I move to point two, if this is the way that God is for us, isn't that such a good reminder for unity? Like, God is for fellow believers this much? How could I then be opposed to them? How can I go up against and speak ill of and slander, cause disunity amongst those for whom God had his son die for them? Good reminder. What an amazing truth of God's love for us. Let's go to point number two. Number two, what's the second no we get in this passage? No condemnation. No condemnation. Second no, so we can know God's relationship for us. No opposition and no condemnation. So you might think, okay, yes, Josh, I get it. God is for us, even when life is brutal, but you don't know how sinful I am. You don't know how far I fall short. And I also know, because I'm a well-taught Bible student, 
that all sin is personal rebellion against God. That when I sin with my eyes, with my thoughts, with my mouth, with my actions, that I'm using my body to declare war against God. So how can God love me? It's a good question. It's a good thing to think about. How do I know I'm not going to be judged for the sins that I continue to commit? Well, verse 33, Paul asks, well, who shall bring any charge against God's elect. Who will bring a charge? Who will say, God, you you need to abandon them. They're sinful. We we might think, well, I've got some friends at school or work that might do that. Uh, Satan is known as the accuser. He could do that and does that. My own conscience does that. But whose voice is the loudest? Well, it's God's voice. He's the one that speaks loudest on any matter. And what does it say? God is the one who justifies. It is God who justifies. It is God who declares us righteous. So anyone can accuse, say, well, they're too sinful for God to love. They're too sinful for God to love. I'm too sinful for God to love. But God's voice is the loudest on the matter. And he doesn't consult with opinion polls. It's his opinion that stands. And his opinion for the Christian is justified. Permanently righteous, permanently forgiven. God is the one who justifies. Who is, verse 34, to condemn? Who would be the one to condemn you? Who would be the one to say, you now need to pay for your sins? We've all been there when we've sinned again in a way that we thought I would never sin that way again. When we see our selfishness, when we see our wickedness, when we see our lack of love for people. What does Paul do here? Because again, this question is, won't God be opposed to me if he understands how sinful I am? What's his evidence? Again, he goes to the work of Christ on the cross. The work of Christ, by the way, according to verse 32, that God sent Jesus to do. What is it? Verse 34. He says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now, this is, this is an important text. Let's look at it again. There's a few different parts going here. It says, Christ Jesus is the one who died, who was raised, who is at the right hand, who indeed is interceding for us. Paul's answer to your doubts and your fears about being condemned is that Jesus already died. That is, if you're worried, God is going to punish me for my sins. If you're not a believer, you you should be worried. That worry should uh, compel you to trust in God. Trust me, there is no other way to have your sins forgiven if you haven't trusted in Christ and turned to Him. But if you are in Christ, if you're following Him, That condemnation is done. It's paid for. He's already delivered the punishment for those sins. That's why Romans 8.1 right there says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no punishment left. And so when you say, I can't go to God in prayer because of my sin, that's not God punishing you. That's you punishing you. God has already punished someone else for that sin. 
It was Jesus on the cross. There's no condemnation left. There's no wrath left. There's no like, well, you know, I I, I can't execute them, but I'll ground them for a week. There's nothing of that. There's nothing vindictive left in God towards your sin. It is paid for. He's already died. Uh, That's that's that he died in your place. And it says he's already been raised. What does that matter with it? He was raised. Well, Jesus' resurrection is the proof that his payment actually worked, for lack of a better term. Like, how do I know that Jesus, perfect, uh, as a perfect person, died for our sins? Well, he, he was raised from the dead. That was uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Romans 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith... Sorry, I'm looking at chapter 4. Look at the end of verse 24. It says, Jesus our Lord, verse 25, who was delivered for our trespasses and raised for our justification. He died for our sins and was raised to show that we've actually been declared right in him. And so if you are looking at your sin, and you are discouraged by your sin, and let me say, a believer is discouraged by their sin. Simple cultural Christianity makes the jump from, yeah, I've blown it, but God has forgiven me. A believer is broken over their sin. But they're comforted, why? Because Jesus died and was raised. He's at the right hand of the Father. And what, what is he doing at the right hand of the Father. It says, this is a word we don't use much anymore. It says, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus constantly intercedes for us. Now, quiz time. I need a homeschooler. Homeschooler, translate for the simple folk. Interceding means what? Go. What does interceding mean? Stepping, yeah, but give us a simplified word here. What, what's he doing? Give me a one-syllable word. What does Jesus do for us? He? Not substitution. It's not interceding. What's another word? When I say, when I say like, I'm going to go ahead and intercede for that person, what am I saying in fancy church language? Yeah. Vouching, Vouching for them? Eh. It's, it's just simply the word, what is it? Not take their place. Oh, that's okay. Praying. See, the idea is you're just praying. Simple word. Look at that. Intercessory. Yeah, look at that. You're praying on their behalf. That's all he's doing. So says that Jesus is praying for them. So there, in your Bible, that word interceding, you could just write off the note, praying, lest you forget. Uh, and then we use words that we don't always know what they mean. So he's praying for them. Well, what is he praying? That's a good question. Jesus is always praying for believers. Right now, if you're a believer, he lives to pray for you. But what? What is he praying Let's think about the prayers of Jesus. So one place you could turn, you don't have to now, but you could look up later, is John 17. John 17, Jesus is praying for his disciples. He's saying not only for them, but for all who would follow after him. And what does he pray for them? He prays for unity. He prays that they'd be sanctified in the truth. That's they mature as they hear the word of God. He prays that uh, they'd be kept from the evil one. He prays for them. That's one place we see the prayers of Jesus. And I think that's what this could mean. But there are two, uh, three times in the Bible where it talks about Jesus specifically praying to the Father on our behalf. One of them is here in Romans chapter 8, and the other two are in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews, what you find unpacking, I think this is here, is talking about Jesus as our high priest and Jesus as our greater sacrifice. So it's interesting, a high priest is someone who would step in on behalf of the people, who would mediate between God and man. 
And he would do that through sacrifice, every year offering a sacrifice. Well, it says that Jesus is the greater high priest because Jesus has offered a greater sacrifice, a permanent sacrifice that makes us right with God. And that sacrifice happens to be himself. He died in our place. Hebrews 7, in the midst of talking about all of that, says, Hebrews 7.25, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And chapter 8 of Romans here, again talks about Jesus died, raised, and he intercedes for us. When Jesus is praying to God on our behalf. The content of his prayer seems to be connected with his death on our behalf. Let me, let me uh, illustrate. How many of you like reminders? You're helped by reminders. You, you, you're, not, you're a forgetful person, so you need like the reminders app on your phone, or you need like note cards around the house. Uh, one of the things, this is such a trivial illustration, but one of the things is my... My kids, who again, we're reading through that book together, one of the things they like to do is in the backyard, they like to play with the hose. And if you were younger, you liked playing with the hose when you are little. Except one of the problems that we'd have is they would regularly, uh, almost always, forget to turn the hose off and just leave it running forever. Just, you know, Newsom is not happy with our drought issues. But... Um, and so what we did was we made a rule, you cannot turn on the hose without mom and dad, and, uh, and they would forget. And so we reminded them. I put some orange duct tape on it, it just says no right there on it. And eventually it wear, wore off because it rained, but the, the orange tape is still there. And what is it? It's a reminder. They know, okay, if I want to play with this, I need to ask mom and dad, so we're reminded to turn it off. Okay, lame illustration, but there it is, a reminder As you sin, as you commit acts of God which demonstrate a love for this world instead of a love for Him, as you knowingly and sometimes even laughingly disobey the God who saved you, Jesus stands there interceding as a permanent reminder that that sin has been paid for. You don't have a physical reminder. You have a living reminder whose blood speaks a better word, it says in Hebrews. A constant reminder to the Father, not that He forgets, but a constant reminder that your sin is covered. That's what He's doing as He intercedes for us. That is why we're not condemned for our sin. Friends, bad things happen when we sin. You, you do reap what you sow. There are consequences uh, for our sins. Uh, discipline, it says in Hebrews 12. But it's never because God is judging you in a small way for that sin. Because he's already judged Jesus in all ways for that sin. If you're in Christ. And so what does that mean? You will never face judgment from God. You will never face opposition from God. That is what your relationship with God is like. So two things again. Number one, no opposition. Number two, no condemnation. Let's finally look at number three. What does this teach us about our, our, uh, 
our relationship with God. Number three, no separation. No separation for the Christian. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's amazing. Love has not been mentioned so far in Romans chapter 8. And yet the natural conclusion is this God who is for us, who doesn't judge us, he must obviously love us. Now we need to be careful, again, because love is such an empty word today. It just gets thrown out in sort of like a foggy, ambiguous way that doesn't mean anything. And again, I've done this before, but you prove it because you'll say, oh, that food, I love that food. That song, I love that song. That random guy that's in your science class that you only ever interact with in science class, yeah, I love that guy. That guy's awesome, right? You just, you just say it. It doesn't mean anything, but you say the word love. And so we need to understand love, especially because we've grown up singing, Jesus loves me, this I know. So what do we know about love? Well, we know from 1 John chapter 4 that God is love. So if we're going to define love, we look at the way God loves. Okay, love is never having to say you're sorry. No, love is what God defines it as, and God helps us see what love is. And so if you want to write down what love is, one of those uh, terms to describe love is that is love that gives or love serves. It's a love that's outward. Okay, for that we think of John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Real love is not just feeling, it's active, it's giving, it's doing. That's why in Ephesians 5, uh, Paul will say, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Okay, so love is love that gives. Love is also a love that initiates. Real love, the kind of love that God is, God demonstrates, is love that initiates. It's not coerced or convinced. Okay, it doesn't say, well, if you earn it, I will love you. Oh, isn't that what we read this morning? Romans 5, that God loved us while we were enemies? If you're here this morning and, and you're hearing this talk, you're maybe newer to church, and you're thinking, man, I want to be loved by God like this. I need to clean myself up first. That is not the way God works. God will love you in spite of your sinfulness. That's the kind of God he is, who knows your flaws and loves you anyway. That's why I think marriage, by the way, just a side note, such a good illustration of love. Nobody is more aware of my flaws than my wife. And I, I could say this because she's not here. She had to leave early. And nobody loves me the way Katie loves me. Same is true for God. It initiates and loves us in spite of us. But thirdly, I do want you to see, just in case, before we make fun of like sappy, Jesus loves you stuff, it is a love that initiates. It is a love that gives. But the love of God is deeply affectionate. It's not a contractual love. It is a love where he feels deeply, cares deeply for his people. And I meant to have these verses for you, so you could jot these down. These are verses that you, some of you don't typically look at. Zephaniah 3.17 talks about God rejoicing over us the way a groom rejoices over his bride. Rejoicing. 1 Peter 5 tells us that God cares for us. That's 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7. So it is a love where God deeply, affectionately loves us, initiates, gives and serves. And Paul sees the work of Jesus as proof of God's love for us and a proof of Christ's love for us. Love that will not 
go away. John 13, 1 says that Jesus loved his disciples to the end, to the utmost. The question is, when are we loved like this? When does Jesus love us the most? And the answer is always. Always. He loved us, and so he bought us with his own blood, 1 Peter chapter 1, and Jesus has no buyer's remorse. He always loves those whom he's purchased. Does Jesus love me even when life is brutal? This week I, I sent a survey to some of you, and I asked you to like text it to other people, and there was like 67 of you that got it, so well done. Uh, unless the, some of you like send it to your friends at school or something. But, and it was just four questions. It was really short. Didn't need it to be that deep. True or false? God loves me. You all said true. Good job. Uh, yeah. And number two is how, on a scale of one to ten, how loved do you feel by God today? But the last two questions were fill in the blank. I feel most loved by God when dot, dot, dot. And I feel least loved by God when dot, dot, dot. And a lot of the answers were the same. I feel most loved by God when I'm walking in obedience and when life is going well, prayers are being answered. I feel least loved by God when I'm walking in sin and when uh, life is hard. There's trials and difficulty. Christian, what does this verse tell us? That nothing ever separates you from the love of Christ. That when life is hard, it is not that Christ loves you any less. Look, when we sin, we've separated ourselves a little bit from God, you know, relationally, but his love for us remains the same. His love does not change. Nothing in life is a sign that God loves us less. Not tribulation, distress, persecution, not famine, nakedness, danger. That's, uh, that's when your basic needs aren't being met. That doesn't mean God loves you less. Not sword. That's another example of people being against you. Never in this life, no matter what life throws at you, does Christ love you any less. And to prove it, Paul goes where we all go, which is to the Psalms, obviously. He says, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Okay, what does that mean? So what Paul is doing is he's quoting a verse out of Psalm 44. And what he's doing is it's this psalm of lament. The people are saying, we have been judged, uh, we've been attacked, we've been spread amongst the nations. And they say, in God, what we're confused by is we're suffering, and we don't think we've done anything wrong. Like if, if we were worshiping some idol, you would have told us. But we're worshiping you, and yet as we're worshiping you, we are being put to death all the day long. Like sheep, we are being led to the slaughter. Paul is reminding us that suffering, when life is brutal, life being brutal, even when you're obedient, is not uncommon. It is a normal thing in this life. For life to be hard and for you to face rejection and pain, even as you're being faithful. But does that mean Christ loves you any less? And the answer, verse 37, is no. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors. We abundantly conquer. We will overcome. Why? Because we're strong? No, because of him who loved us. Christ loves us. 
He, he loves us. He willingly came to die for sinners. He says that he came to seek and to save the lost, that he gives a life a ransom for many, that the, the good shepherd loves his sheep and lays down his life for the sheep. Student, you are never unloved by Christ if you've come to him. You, you just can't say that when you think about the cross. You, you just can't believe that. And Paul makes another argument here in verse 38. Because it is not just Jesus that loves us this way. Again, I've said this before. Sometimes we think God is the one who's really stoic. Jesus is the one who's like the one who's a little more chill and calmed him down. But we know it's, it's God that, verse 32, did not spare his son for us. It's God who sent Christ. It's God, according to verse 38, look, who loves us in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the love that God has for us. Spurgeon one time said quite uh, provocatively, he said, uh, you know, when we look at the cross, are you tempted to think that God loves us more than Jesus? Now be careful, the answer is no to that. You know, go go to John 17. Hold your spot here. We need to look at this. John 17 Because obviously, no, God does not love us more than his son. Verse 23, though, says, I and them, this is mid-prayer, so we're just jumping in mid-prayer here. I and them and you and me, Jesus praying to the Father, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and you loved them, other believers, even as you loved me. God does not love us more than his son. But because we're in Christ, it says there in Romans 8, according to this verse in John 17, he doesn't love us any less than his son. That would sound very dangerous if it wasn't in the Bible. That would be very seeker-sensitive, mushy if it wasn't in the Bible. That in Christ, in spite of yourself, God loves you the way he loves his son. And therefore what? Let's go back to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8. It almost doesn't even need to be said. It doesn't need to be broken down. We just know it. I am sure that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers. Look, I could give you the breakdown of everything Paul's saying. I don't think he's trying to be precise. I think he's trying to imagine every single angle that you could think about maybe God doesn't love you or something that could separate you from God's love. Nothing geographically, nothing in the heavens, nothing present, nothing future, in our height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. That is the love that God has for us. In Christ. That is the love that is yours if you, when you go to God in prayer, when you sing to Him, when you obey, when you disobey, but you're trying to obey. That is the love the Father has for you. <laughs> that is such good news for us. That is the hope that we can have. If God loves us like this now, He's going to bring us all the way to the end. That is the love you have in Christ. Student, that's the love you could have this morning. If you are not a Christian, God calls you, he invites you, he compels you to come to him through his son, that he would pay for all your sins and you might draw near to him 
in this way. That is Romans chapter 8. That is the good news. Now here's where I want to end. I want to end by looking at two verses. One right here in Romans and one somewhere else. Because you cannot leave today without thinking about this. Take your Bible and go. I'm going to use my phone right here to hold my spot in Romans 8. Take your Bible and go to 1 Kings. And if you don't want to go to 1 Kings, look at your friend's Bible that's at 1 Kings. Because we're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 10. The question this morning is how should we respond? So respond, some of you need to respond by coming to Jesus. You will be, God will be opposed to you. Uh, if you are not for him. And so turn to Christ and you can have forgiveness. You should also respond if you're a believer with thankfulness, with peace, with assurance. Uh, How weird it is for the the husband to every day bring home flowers and make dinner and clean the house, only for the wife every day to go like, I don't really know if he loves me. It'd be very strange for you to doubt God's love after all that he's done to abundantly over the top Prove it. But what should your response be? Okay, Some of you, I should say this, most of you are familiar with the love of God. You've heard so many sermons about God's love, but I would ask you if you really know God's love. 1 Kings chapter 10 is an amazing chapter. One of the most wealthy queens in the world comes to King Solomon. God has raised up Solomon. She comes and she sees his wisdom. And then in verse 14, you start seeing the wealth of Solomon. He has all this gold and all these shields of gold. And he's got all sorts of coins. He has this amazing throne made with ivory and then covered with gold and all these lions. And then verse 23 says, Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. It's this amazing text of how abundantly good God has been to Solomon. Then we get to chapter 11. Now, King Solomon loved, and it should say, Yahweh. God has so loved Solomon, it should say, and King Solomon loved Yahweh. But instead, he loved, it says, foreign women. And, And what did that look like? It looked like verse 2 where it says from the nations concerning Yahweh, these women from the nations, that they, uh, well, they bring idols into your marriage. And, and Solomon clung to these idols in love. And verse 4, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not, here's the phrase, wholly true, not completely devoted to Yahweh, his God. A right response to the love of God is going to look like loving God in return. Notice, not loving God does not look like rejecting God. It does sometimes in this room. Not loving God does look like rejecting and not wanting anything to do with God. But not loving God often looks like loving Him third or fifth. And I would just say, when I look at this passage, I don't mean to guilt trip us and say, see what God has done? You should love him back. What I want you to say is, if this is the love God has shown me, 
can I really be responding rightly if he's fifth or third or even second? If I think about him so sparingly. What does it look like? We'll we'll end in this. Romans chapter 12 and then we're going to sing. Back to Romans. You used your phone like I did. Romans chapter 12. One verse. And this is where Paul's going with all of this. Paul's response to all of Romans chapter 1 through chapter 11 is 12 verse 1. And we'll look at verses 9, 10, 11 over the next couple weeks. But Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, God's mercy, God in his kindness did not kill me, but had his son die in my place, saved me, gave me a spirit, gave me hope of the future, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You know what the right response is to the love of God? That your life is a sacrifice. God, all of me is you. All of me is for you. It's all for your glory. It's all to obey you. It's all to treasure you. I give you my weekends, my entertainment, my team, my relationships, my social media, my desires, my college. Everything is for you. And I do it willingly. Why? Because you loved me while I was an enemy. Christ died for me. You are never opposed to me. You will never judge me. Nothing separates me from your love. The only right response is to worship with our whole life the God who loves sinners in this way. And we can do that now even as we sing. Let me pray and we'll be done. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the incredible love that you've shown us in Jesus. Thank you that you've loved us in spite of ourselves and that we have these these promises, Lord. God, I pray that we would love you appropriately in response. God, we'll never earn your love and we should never love you this way to try to earn your love. But God, if we're astonished that you would love sinners like us, there's nothing else for us to do but to surrender our whole lives to you. Thank you, Lord, that we could trust you that you will do us no wrong, that those who put their trust in you will not be put to shame, but you promise to show this kindness towards us. Thank you for your son, Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.